Respect. Sevome. Respeto. Spoštujmo. Respect words. Ithiki dimosiografia ya tin adimetopisi tis ritorikis tumisus. Etichno novinarstvo proti sovražnemu govoru. Il potere delle parole. Respect for Worten, Respect for Menschen gegen Hassreden. A tisztelet hangján szólunk. Riportok, interjúk, tudósítások a gyűlöletbeszéd ellen. Mi becsüljük a másikat. Respect. La onda local de Andalucía contra los discursos de odio. Más or oco? Erisorok de etikul, egyen a kainte fóha. Ethical journalism against hate speech. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Now, it is my pleasure to welcome to Respect Words, Nolene Blackwell, who is the Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. But before taking up that position from 2005 to 2015, Nolene was the Director of FLAC, the Free Legal Aid Society. Before that, she worked as a General Practitioner with a particular interest in family law and human rights in general. She... uh, has a particular interest in refugee and immigration law. She sits on the Law Society's Human Rights Committee and its Family Law and Civil Aid Committee. And she is a former chairperson of Amnesty International Ireland. Nolene Blackwell, good afternoon and welcome to Respect Words. Thank you very much, Tony. I'm delighted to be talking to you. Nolene, before we get into the meat of it, you said before we were setting this up, that you actually thought that Respect Words was a great title for the programme. Why was that, Nolene? I love it. I love the, uh, the sort of pun that it is, that you can read it in different ways or you can hear it in different ways. But most of all, I love it because the Irish people are really, um, really understand the word respect. I think we understand it more than anything else. Having respect for yourself, having respect for other people is something that we in Ireland will talk about quite regularly. Um, And I was particularly struck by it once years ago when in fact I was talking to some people whom I knew but not very well. And we were just talking about people who had come to Ireland looking for asylum and were in direct provision for far too long as it happened. And one of the women who was in the group said, "Um, that's not respectful. And I thought that was wonderful. She wasn't saying it was illegal. She wasn't saying anything other than that it wasn't showing respect. So that idea of respect, if we could really all better understand it, if we could better live up to the idea of respect for ourselves and respect for others, I think we would have a better society. And the other thing is, and this is all about words as well, this this series of programs, respect words is so important. Words can be so damaging. Words have the, the capacity to harm other people, to harass them, to do them damage. And so, for a whole lot of reasons, to get that phrase into our heads, respect words, respect their capacity to do good and respect their capacity to do harm, and then live with that concept of respect. I think it's, it's a great way to live a life. And, Nolene, I suppose, you know, I'll... T- I'll uh, I'll make full use of you having you on air today because just to pick your your legal brain and we, we'll open it out then. 
in relation to the law as it stands in Ireland incitement to hatred hate speech all that how, wh- where in the legislation is that covered Norlene? Alright so in general terms somebody could be prosecuted under our general law for hateful behaviour or hateful speech because if, if, if it if it possibly affected public order or public morality so freedom of speech in Ireland generally under our constitution is restricted by the need to ensure that you preserve public order and public morality. But in the late 1980s, in 1989, uh, we um, brought in legislation which is the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act. And that is our law in this country. Now it's turned out to be not the best piece of legislation ever. Uh, It is Uh, hard to read, it's hard to understand, and it's hard to bring uh, a crime, uh, to bring a criminal offence. Very few offences have, very few charges have been brought under that legislation, which is now, what, 30 years old, uh, maybe even 40, 30, I think. Uh, So very few charges have been brought, and there have been very few successful uh, prosecutions. In fact, I can only think of one off the top of my head, and that was a case brought down in Kerry where there was a conviction against a group who were uh, engaging in online offensive speech against travellers in that area. But really, as a piece of legislation, everyone knows it's not that effective. And the reason we know for sure is that there are a number of initiatives going on. The Department of Justice is actually reviewing the Act. Now, it's spent a long time reviewing it, and it hasn't done much about it. Uh, the Law Reform Commission, which is the government's think tank on this area, have identified there's a need to have new legislation dealing with harmful communications, which would include uh, the hate speech and the and the hateful uh, communications that people have for one another. Um, and the Minister for Communications, Dennis Nocton, has recently proposed setting up a digital safety commissioner because so much hateful behaviour, so much hateful speech can happen online. But truly, we don't have a, a very comprehensive way of dealing specifically with people who behave in offensive and discriminatory ways against other people. Now, it's a bit of a two-edged sword, Stoney, because when you put this legislation in place, then the state and the police not only have to prove that some horrible act happened, but they have to prove that it happened from a hateful motive, so it can make it difficult. But one of the things we could easily do is we could say, if someone is convicted of a crime of some sort, of, say, arson, burning somebody's property because they don't like them or because they're different or something like that, then we could make it uh, another part of the sentence that they got a longer sentence if it were shown that they had a discriminatory or a hateful motive. So, anyway, that's maybe getting a bit technical, but just to make the point that we don't have a good set of legislation in Ireland to deal with crimes and harms that are caused by people who are just, who are doing it principally because they find the other person different or they want to discriminate against them or they, they find them offensive on the basis of say, their race 
or nationality or sexual orientation or whatever it is. Nolene, uh, the first time that I came across you, if you'll pardon me using that expression, you you were the director of FLAC. And yeah. I mean, that, that, that is an organisation of, of high standing and high repute in the country. And the reason I'm saying that is because, well, let's be honest, that's not today nor yesterday, I suppose, Nolene. Yeah. From then until now, and I know you're somebody that keeps your, your finger on the pulse of, of these matters and, and you keep a close eye to it. Have you seen a change in attitude towards uh, immigrants into this country and refugees by the Irish people? Or is there still that sort of, uh, oh, they're over there and keep them over there and uh, sure, I suppose we have to take them sort of people into the country? Or has the attitudes changed? Yeah, so exactly. Uh, I've I've been around this area for a long time now, Donny, and uh, in the 19. 19- 90s, which was really when immigration started to ratchet up in Ireland. Ireland was a country that knew very few people from other countries. We knew people who um, came from America and Britain mostly, um, but even people from the European mainland were rarely coming into Ireland. And then in the 1990s, with the fall of the Berlin Wall at the end of the 80s, with Ireland gaining increased prominence through things like the World Cup, Mary Robinson, um, the fact that, that our missionaries had been in Africa, um, and the fact that conflicts were arising all over the world, there were more people coming into Ireland in a less organized way. So we always had some people coming in from, say, the other continents. That they were coming into our medical schools, they were coming in to, uh, to study and to teach um, and that kind of thing. But in truth, actually, the first person I thought was a foreigner when I was growing up was someone we called the Yank at home. But it turned out that was an Irish person who'd gone to America for a few years and had then come home. So, like, we, we really, I, I certainly was very innocent about all of this. When yeah, it started just in the, the 1990s, then and just well, to... Ireland started off with an extremely compassionate attitude to those who were fleeing, say, the Balkan Wars in Croatia, in Slovenia, um, well, not so much Slovenia, Croatia, um, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Serbia, and places like that. Uh, and also we were seeing people coming who were escaping from Cuba, and then people were escaping from Eastern Europe. And then people started coming from the massive sets of conflicts that were arising in Africa. And as people came, we weren't having the kind of conversations we needed to had, have. And people became uneasy at the rate in which people were coming into Ireland. Now, the rate was nothing like they were coming in anywhere else. But for us, it was a loss. A lot. And so where there was initially kind of a, a curiosity about new people coming in and a recognition of how much they could bring, we did go through a period where I think we became extremely nervous about people coming in from other countries in a disorganized way. Uh, so, but actually, over time, I think we have grown up a lot in the past number of years. Our people are continuing to emigrate, to move to other places. They're now moving to all sorts of places. They're well-educated. They're going to Asia. We're looking to Asia for trade. Uh, we're looking to Africa for trade. And Africans are coming in who are trading with us. So we're seeing the other continents other than the ones we were used to in North America and in the rest of Europe. And I think we have become more mature, more recognizing that actually we need 
and, sh- and, and can respect and must respect people coming in from other countries here, apart from anything else. We, too, need them to boost our workforce, to maintain the social security services that we have. Having said that, on the margins, as ever, there are people who are, who are fearful and hateful and who, are trying, who make a noise uh, which, which is really distressing about other people against whom we still, and we still do have discrimination on the grounds of skin color, on the grounds of a language a person talks, on the basis of where they come from. But we discriminate in Ireland anyway against our own people if they are different. We discriminate against people who are poor, and we discriminate against women. So it's just something to be more conscious of. I actually think we're better than we were now 15 years ago in terms of how we deal with people who are coming into Ireland from other cultures. But we don't make it easy for them. We don't welcome them. We don't, for instance, even give people permanent residence in this country, no matter how much we welcome them in for the skills they bring. So we've an we still have a very long way to go. But I do think there's something that we have improved. Things we thought and, and things we would have said 15, 20 years ago on the basis of ignorance, we're now learning they're not acceptable. And that has to be an improvement. Yeah, and it just put me in mind there, actually, Nolly, when you were talking about when you were young and, and uh, the, the Yank was the, the referred to as, as a foreigner, even though he was a returned Irish person. I remember in my younger days, the only time you ever saw and when I say young now, I mean before I was 10 or 11 years of age. The only coloured person you see in Ireland was usually a doctor who was here training yeah. and or an Indian doctor who was here and then they were, got their training and they were gone. Exactly, exactly. So, th- so they didn't stay. There was very little to stay for in this country. Now we have, you know, we are the global headquarters of a whole lot of multinational industries where, where not only do they want, but they will insist on having huge diversity in their workforce. And so we have those people who are here. We have people coming in as refugees who are vastly well qualified and then are told to sit and wait for years before they can, before they can work. We have um, kids coming up who are challenging the native Irish children because they work so hard, because they're so good. That's the kind of thing that other countries have prioritized and seen as actual useful values in their system. We're not quite there yet. We're still kind of going, oh, go on, you can come in if you want to, maybe, if you can do a really good job. That's no, that's no way for us to deal with this. We should be recognizing, embracing the diversity that we have in here. We should be making it easy for people to live here, to love here, to stay here, to want to be here. And of course, that means an immigration system that is clear about who may and who may not come in, who is clear about state security, things like that. But you, you just put a good system in place but recognize that we are a people who move ourselves. We emigrate. The people who are here right now might be here for decades or centuries, but we still moved in here from somewhere else. And for all of that, we are, we are better when we're bigger, when we're, when we're more diverse, when we're more connected to the rest of the world. And that's our opportunity. 
But as I say, I think we see it more. We don't deal with everything well. We tend to put too much pressure on people who are already poor and under-resourced in our societies. Um, we, we put the extra pressure on them rather than spreading the burden more fairly. That's the wrong thing to do. That's the kind of thing that raises tensions. It's often unnecessary, but it is improving. As we recognize, we are part of a global world. As Brexit goes on, it will be more necessary than ever that we understand that we are part of a global movement of peoples and we can move and so can other people. Nolan, you touched on it there uh, briefly uh and I know you mentioned it at one stage, but you touched, did touch on it in relation to the way people who come into this country are treated. We're being warehoused in what we have lovingly come to term direct provision. I mean, I've lost count of the amount of ministers and junior ministers who have, and I'm putting my fingers in the air, looked at direct provision. It's a disgrace. Yeah, it, it was never meant to last more than six months. And, and to have a reception centre for people who were coming into the country for the first time with, with nothing did not seem like a bad idea at all. But from the moment it started, there was no um, proper plan to keep it for what it was intended. We said that people could go in there. We, we denied them access to any money. We denied them access to education. We denied them access to a private life. We put people into dormitory-type situations where we never, uh, in, uh, particularly in the early days, never even checked were they going into a dormitory with the same person, with, with a person uh, who might be from the same country but might have been on the other side of a war they were in. Uh, we put them in situations where children were put at risk, women are put at risk. Direct provision is a nightmare. Now, direct provision has always been a nightmare. And what is really interesting now, as housing is under pressure for Irish people, is that we, the Irish people, made a mistake in not managing direct provision earlier, uh, better earlier. Because if we had... If we had identified the purpose of hubs or direct provision as temporary measures with an understanding of where people would go from there, we would not have created a situation where we are used to having almost homeless children. Now we talk about the Irish children who are homeless or who are in emergency hostels. This has been the case since 2000. Children have been in emergency hostels, effectively, in direct provision for the past 18 years in Ireland. And we did not notice when it happened to others because they were the others. Now we notice when it happens to the children who were born here who are Irish citizens. But it is all part of a whole. It is all part of failing to identify where we did not respect the human rights of those in direct provision. We allowed a situation to develop where actually that was bound, that attitude was bound to spread further out of the asylum-seeking population into the wider population. Direct provision should, should stop. There, that the report that Brian McMahon did, Judge Brian McMahon did a report, is that two or three years ago now, setting out what needed to happen to have people... Uh, 
out of direct provision or to fix all of the problems in it have not been implemented. Direct provision is a nightmare. It should stop. The trouble right now is there is no alternative because the housing crisis has got worse rather than better and and there is no thinking done about how to house those who are in effectively temporary accommodation. And Nolene, uh, before I let you go, and I have to thank you so much for your generous time with us in the making it's of this programme. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, one thing that we, and as the three or four of us involved in producing this 20-part documentary, but it's the one thing personally that I've taken from this in the, in the making of it, Nolene, is one word that I see and that I can associate with this, and it's something that, that I won't say it upsets me, and I'm not even too sure that it surprises me either, is the fact that we've seen that there is really, really a lot of stereotyping when it comes to, I'll just call them foreign nationals living in our country. Yes. So, so there's, there's all sorts of stereotyping going on. That is, that is absolutely true. As you say, once upon a time, the person with brown skin was seen as a doctor, um, and that's not the case anymore, and there are more stereotypes available uh, now to people. Everyone is stereotyped. Men are stereotyped. Women are stereotyped. People are stereotyped about their gender, their sexual orientation, uh, their, their level of income. We, we assume people on social welfare are stereotyped in one way. Um, people who live on high incomes are stereotyped in another way, where, it, for instance, in, in my current area, one of the stereotypes you see is how hard it is for people to understand that sexual violence happens in all classes of society. It happens with the most so-called respectable in our society, and it happens with the so-called less respectable in our society. So there's stereotyping going on all of the time. And in some ways, going back to the start and, and to, the, to the theme of your set of programs, it is a lack of respect in some ways, a lack of understanding that every single one of us is an individual. Each of us comes with our own gifts and our own faults. And no, and, and stereotyping is actually blinds us to the reality of other people. And it can be dangerous in so many ways, in the way that I'm putting it, that where stereotyping exists, the, the so-called respectable can't be seen as having done any wrong. It can be wrong in it can be wrong in the way that you're talking about it, where foreign nationals are branded with the same brush without anybody knowing anything about them. It, it, the stereotyping on grounds of um, social class, for instance, can mean that policies are made by the state which are downright wrong because account isn't taken of the diversity of human people. So, yes, I'm sure that's coming across, because if you're talking about respect, stereotyping is one of the things that militates against respect. And, Nolene, just one final question before, before I let you go. In your current role, and I, this is probably an, an absolutely impossible question for you to answer, but do you think that there are a lot of foreign nationals who are or immigrants, whatever phrase you want to use in relation to them, uh, who are the subject of sexual violence, and it's going unreported because they're afraid to put their head above the parapet. 
Yeah, that's that's a real concern for us, Tony. One of the things we have raised actually with TUSLA, which is our main funding agency, is that while we do come across people from a wide variety of nationalities, and we work with people from a wide variety of nationalities, or in the sense that people come to us from for, for ther- therapy from a wide variety of countries and backgrounds. Nonetheless, there is a real concern that we haven't been able, uh, through lack of funding and resources, uh, nobody has been able to get out in a big enough way to, to talk to all of our various communities about the realities of sexual violence, about the resources that are there in Ireland, about what's right and what's wrong in Ireland. Uh, and so it's one of the ways in which we would certainly welcome the opportunity to meet even with representatives from, I don't know, churches or community groups or women's groups to just talk about the realities of of sexual violence, to to have people understand what it means in Ireland and to understand that there are resources out there. Like, for instance, one of the things that we would really love to do and we will hope to do it at some stage, is to make sure that our helpline is available to everybody. The National 24-Hour Helpline is run by the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, and we would want it to be available to everybody throughout the country, which it is free, um, and at the same time we'd like it to be available to everybody, whatever their language or background. So we'll be very much trying to push that forward during 2018, because we think that even within the indigenous Irish community who have had lots of opportunities over the years to know about us. People don't really know about uh, what, what we do. They don't often even understand sexual violence until something comes up. You know, we, we often get people coming and saying something like, I didn't know that, or I thought I had to put up with it, is a, is a great line. And, and we can say... No, you, 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 you know, you don't. Or they can say themselves, I now know I don't have to put up with it. Are we reaching people in newer communities in Ireland in the same way? I'm not so sure. Uh, but we, w- we will be trying harder to, to reach those. Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, and among her long litany of achievements, also former chairperson of Amnesty International Ireland. Thank you so much for joining me on today's edition of Respect Words. Nolene, always informative and always highly, highly educational and always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so Thank much, Nolene. Thank you, a pleasure to talk to you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Respect. Sevome. Respeto. Spostuimo. Respect Words. Ηθική δημοσιογραφία για την αντιμετώπιση της ρητορικής του μίσους. Ήτιτσνο νοβιναρστό πρωτισοβράζνε μου γόβορο. Ηλποτέρε δελε παρόρε. Respect for Worten, respect for Menschen gegen Hassreden. Ατιστερατ χαγγιαν σόλουν. Ριπορτοκ ίντερουκ τουδούσιτασοκ αγιούλοδατε μεσίδ έλλαν. Μη μπέτσου Respect. La onda local de Andalucía contra los discursos de odio. Mas or oco? Erisorg de Etikul, Iguina Kainta Fuha. Ethical journalism against hate speech. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Supported by the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme of the European Union.